Hello, welcome to today's this week's episode of uh, choosing the big screen. I am one of your hosts, Josh for tracing, um, and I am Corwin Heller. I briefly forgot the name of our show and was about to read uh, the name of one of the movies we're doing because uh, I was looking right at it. So I was about to say, "Welcome to this week's episode of the Lobster," <laughs> which uh, yes. that is not this podcast, man. We are not a lobster-based podcast. What are not crustaceans. Um, Jesus, dude, I sat here trying to think of literally any other name of any crustacean and I couldn't do it. I froze. Shrimp. Fuck. God damn it. Uh, oyster. oyster? Uh, Muscle? That's a crustacean. It's a shellfish. Are they not one and the same? I genuinely don't know. Yeah, I, I don't either. <laughs> um, Oh, fucking whatever. Who cares? Whatever. Yeah, it's not it's not worth it for this conversation. Anyway, we are here today to talk about um, the 2005 film Capote and <laughs> the 2015 film uh, The Lobster. So, Corbin, where would you like to start 2015 or 2005? Let's start with uh, let's start with our crustacean friends. All right. So the lobster uh, came out in 2015. It is uh, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. It was written by Yorgos Lanthimos and Ephemis Philippou. Uh, it stars Colin Farrell, Rachel Weiss, and Jessica Barden, um, which is interesting because those are relatively minor characters in the grand scheme of things um, outside of Colin Farrell, obviously. Um, other notable people in this movie, Olivia Coleman who is a Yorgos Lanthimos frequent collaborator. Um, John C. Riley is also in those. And Leia Sado, who has been having uh, much larger of a career or has continued to uh, get a lot of attention since, uh, since this part. She was recently in the David Cronenberg film, Crimes of the Future as well. Um, I think just got cast in the upcoming... Um, oh, shit. She just got cast uh, in something. Dune Part Two, Dune. yes, thank you. Dune yep. Part Two. I was gonna say it's a sequel to something, but it wasn't um, Mission Impossible because she already did Mission Impossible Five. Uh, I I just realized I've never seen a Mission Impossible, and I really want to just watch that series. You know what's funny about Mission Impossible? But, the movies keep getting better. It's one of the very few That's movie what series. I keep hearing. Yeah, honestly, like, everything the original I've heard trilogy, about them is that it's just boom. The original trilogy isn't that great. The original trilogy of movies, like they're they're fun, you know what I mean. Like they are yeah. fun movies, but they're very moody at points. And then by movie four, it gives up a lot of that like darker kind of cinematography and and a lot of like you know like the well, I guess just moodiness of it, and aims for a more like streamlined action film, and just fucking crushes it. And the three movies I... since then have been increasingly better. I think I'm going to watch the first one and then skip two and three just to get like the basis, basic premise of like who they are, like what their relationship is. And then just be like, all right, give me, give me to the good ones. I'll piece together the rest. I mean, I, I, I funny enough, I just watched all of them <laughs> last uh, week. Where did um, you watch them? They are all 
on Paramount Plus, which I begrudgingly got because I wanted to watch the Jets and it was my only option. Uh, but now I anyway. actually use. Yeah, I've uh, I've never used it. I don't know what but is on it. One, two and four, I believe, are on Netflix. It's sure. Yeah. Anywho, not what we're here to discuss. Um. Yeah, sorry. Back, back, back to the lobster. I was going to actually start going, kind of planning a tangent about crimes of the future. I'm assuming you haven't seen it. Uh, sorry, which movie? Crimes of the Future. No. All right. Yeah. Well, if you if you end up watching it, we'll talk about it. Um. Anyway. So yeah. So starring those people. Um. Man. <laughs> We're off the rails. What are we man. talking about? <laughs> Talk about Lobster had an estimated budget of four million pounds and a gross worldwide of fifteen point five million dollars. I do not care to do the twenty fifteen pound to or sorry euro to um, dollar conversion. So let's just rough guess that shit around seven million dollars of U.S. dollars and then a, a cumulative worldwide gross of fifteen point five. So uh, a success. You know, it's a it's an indie film. Um, and of course, as with all indie films where it lacks in money, it makes up for in Oscar nominations as the film was ultimately os- nominated for one single Oscar. And that was best original screenplay for Yorgos Lanthimos and Aphthimus Philippou. Uh, the film itself is about in a dystopian near future, single people, according to the laws of the city, are taken to the hotel where they are obliged to find a romantic partner in 45 days or are transformed into beasts and sent off into the woods. Uh, this was my film, so I will go ahead and get us started. Uh, and this is a very interesting type of, I guess we could say, like it says in the description, uh, dystopian future film, because it's not about technology and even the advanced technology that's in the film, you know, this machine that transforms you into an animal uh, it's not it's kind of like a nothing burger of a of a of a machine like they don't really make use of it in the plot outside of a, a couple spare scenes um it really is about just an, another avenue to examine interpersonal relationships and how we value love and intimacy in society which at the end of the day is what a good you know, kind of sci-fi movie will do, as we've talked about on the show in, in the past, you know, a good sci-fi movie, which I think this does fall into in a, in a broader sense, um, is meant to take a, a, a new lens to an existing philosophical question of some kind. And the idea here with this film is that we have, quote unquote, advanced or in some ways changed you know, from evolutionary steps that have led us up to current day, perhaps, to a society that sees relationships as functional rather than um, emotional. They're practical relationships with a touch of emotionality uh, rather than being a personal choice and something that you truly feel with all of your, your heart. And to make sure that we're maximizing society's output, whether that be, and it doesn't specify in which area, but whether that be um, production in a capitalist sense, whether it be for population's sake, uh, whether it be just the way some crazy fucking dude decided we should all be. Um, it has been decided that couples are, are the, the best way to progress. Heterosexual or homosexual doesn't matter. 
Right. The only way. Um, and so, you know, we'll get a little bit more into the plot from there, but it, it's such an interesting premise and such a such an interesting view on what it means to really be in love and having to find that for yourself and within others, especially with this, this thing looming over your head of time which I think is what makes this film relatable. We all feel that in some respects, arbitrary as it might be. 45 days, I think, is what they get is an arbitrary amount of time. And so is being married by any age ever. You know what I mean? Like they used to say, if you were a single woman unmarried after like 30, you were an old old maid or a spinster. And it's like, why? You know, it's, it's just, it's all arbitrary, but we all feel it we all feel it kind of looming a little bit. When, when am I going to be, am I going to be too old when I have kids? Am I going to be too old when those kids have kids? You know, am I, am I too young? Am I doing this too fast? And so to to have all these kind of factors represented in such kind of like magical ways, you know, dark, a little bit fantastical ways, I thought was very effective. So uh, interested to hear your thoughts, Mr. Heller. Not to be contrarian, but I feel like age was almost the only aspect of marriage that wasn't like heavily scrutinized. I just no, can't no, think I, of. I meant for the uh, the time part being the forty five days being arbitrary. Okay, all right, that's yeah. fair. Um, so again, just the backstory. I watched this movie. I don't know, three four years ago, much closer to its actual release, uh, knowing that it was you know highly praised and something that very much looked to be up my alley. And I just didn't get it. I watched through the movie. Now looking back, likely not as closely as I should have, but I watched the full movie. And at the end of it, I genuinely sat there and just kind of held my head in my hands and just thought, I have no idea what just happened. I could not follow it whatsoever. I just, I was lost on both the intricacies of the plot and the intricacies of the message that was getting across and watching it again for a second time. It only took me about three quarters of the way through it to find out the, you know, what they were actually getting after. And I'm so proud of myself five hours into a, you know, (laughs) endeavor. And I finally figured out what the hell it's about. Five Um, hours into a two hour movie. You finally get it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you know what? It was really fucking awesome. You know, I'm sure the first time I watched it, the choices with how characters are portrayed and the emotion in which people in this society are, you know, is considered normal behavior, uh, probably threw me off a mile. But the more you look at it, when you realize affection and um, really any signs of feeling outside of stating fact and agreement is frowned upon okay you know different uh what's the term i'm looking for um how you carry your voice your tone of voice the you know the the little je ne sais quoi you add to words to change the emphasis and the meaning are completely unusable because it would be looked down upon and just from a purely, you know, spoken language and language history perspective, wow, that would be really cool to think about how like one aspect of culture missing, changing the entire 
spoken language and written language and just the common parlance of the entire society, um, which again, probably distracted me from the little parts of the movie that you might miss. Um, but yeah, I thought it was uh, an awesome film to watch again for the third time. <laughs> now, where, where, where was this your first Yorgos Lanthimos movie? Was this your entry point? Um, I couldn't name you another movie. There's a possibility that I could uh, have seen one. Um, his most recent film was another Oscar nominee. Actually, I believe it won a couple Oscars. The Favorite, also starring Olivia Coleman. Love the favorite. We talked about it on the uh, on the podcast. I thought we had. Yeah. Uh, Do you see the killing of a sacred deer? I have not. No. And then his uh, his first full length feature film, I believe, that, or at least no, the first one I saw was a uh, dog tooth. Um, I did not see that. Which either. is in his native Greek. Um, Ooh, killing of a sacred deer. Interesting cast of characters in that one. Um, Okay. But anyway, I say that just to say, yeah, Yorgos is a, it's a think. This is, this is one of those instances where it, you know, it might help knowing, you know, who your directors are going into films to, to, to help brace you for uh, some wackiness, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it shouldn't be required of any film to know who made it, but sometimes going into a, a movie, you know, expecting a lot of talking or expecting an explosion or two, you know, like helps you contextualize it a little bit and so that definitely knowing who Yorgos was heading into this certainly helps he's married to the nurse from the lobster I didn't realize that neat Neat. Yeah, this is um it's such an interesting movie because it's not it doesn't even just look at love you know it really is a view on optimizing society is really what it is because once uh, Colin Farrell and uh, Rachel Weiss find each other, they don't really know what to do with that. And mm-hmm. it's funny. I really had forgotten how much of the movie that was in my recollection of the film. So much more of it was the hotel. And then when he gets out of the hotel, like, I don't know, maybe slightly under an hour in, I was like, oh, wow, so much more of this movie is left to go. Um, See, I was the exact opposite where I only remember the the forest and then being in the forest. And it's like, wow, they are, they spent a lot of time building up to that. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's funny because, you know, they spend these times looking for which clear cut points bring us compatibility. And when it's within the confines of the hotel, it's like, okay, well, everyone's looking for that thing that will tie them to this other person that they can latch onto real quick to avoid getting turned into a Shetland pony or whatever, you know? But once they leave the confines of the hotel and they're within Leia Sado's little, you know, group of people, uh, which obviously have the rules of no compatibility. And we go to the exact opposite type of environment where any type of um, perceived intimacy is, is, is punishable by some means. Um, and Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz find each other in that respect. They still don't really know what to do with that. It's they just have- contrarian to be contrarian. 
they know what it is and that's bad because we don't like it so let's just do the exact opposite and see if that works and it doesn't and i I know i'm jumping ahead to the ending a little bit because and there's a lot of movie before that but whatever here we are jumping to the end real quick because it ends with rachel weiss having been intentionally blinded by leia sado and i will never learn character names if you listen to this podcast you know that um Correct. Which actually helps since most of these women don't have names. <laughs> um, uh, Rachel Weiss's character's name is Short Sighted Woman. And uh, love that. I'm not sure what the hell Leia Sado's name. I don't even see her in the fucking top cast of this movie. So I'm not scrolling this far down to find her. Um, anyway, uh, it ends with her having been blinded and Colin Farrell being like, fuck, what makes us a couple then? What's our point? that we can we can um you know like like latch on to and he decides for compatibility's sake to contemplate i guess i should say since it's left up up in the air um to gouge his own eyes out so that they have a point of compatibility um what do you make of that ending uh very sopranos-esque um almost to a fault um I mean, I didn't remember it whatsoever uh, rewatching it again. And honestly, like, I, I think I'm still in that boat of I'm not entirely sure. Like, is it a can he go through with it if he does go through with it? I mean, there's nothing left really for this story to do. I feel like I imagine there is still some sort of law enforcement force outside of just guys checking passports, essentially. Um that's not something that just kind of happens and is thought, oh, yeah, okay, that's happening. Let's move on with our day. Um, I also think that there's no way it is meant to be thought of that literally. I don't know. I have no idea what that is. I, I think it's a really sad ending because I think the reading is that he is going to gouge his eyes out. Or at least, you know, stab himself in the eyes, rendered them useless. Uh, because that is ultimately, you know, cumulatively what this society has has gotten to, which is we don't know we have removed emotion from the idea of relationships, such to the point that here are two people that are in love, but haven't seen it or experienced it in any real way. And you never see any couples that are together actually in love at all. You see, there's a lovely moment where I think Leia Sado's parents play music together, but it's also very clear that like that was their connection point where they mm. both play an instrument. Isn't that so nice? They both play guitar. Isn't that so nice? Mm. And here are these two people that don't have anything but are in love. And Colin Farrell is so it has been so removed from this specific society to understand that and to embrace it, that he is prepared to stab himself in the eyes because of the power that he feels Mm. held by this love, but also because he doesn't think it makes any sense for them to be together unless there is a thing, a thing that brings them together. And so it's it's like beautiful with it's like look how fucking strong love is and it's like yeah love's awesome 
but it's also crazy because it's it's you know this misdirected feeling based on the you know structures we've established within this world it's so wild i'm honestly more intrigued about the society that this world has built rather than the specific narrative of the two characters at the end of the film uh if he does it or if he doesn't uh, i don't really care one way or the other i want a documentary on this planet and just the societal hierarchy how does this work how did it come to be i want to know the history let's just make this a film franchise well Pull that's what curtain. i think is so interesting because then it's like you know you re-examine how everyone talks to each other and everyone kind of like there's no super like normal casual conversation you know like it's very kind of like stilted very very rigid and stiff the way everyone talks to each other but everyone does it so it really because at at the beginning it's like oh well this feels like a kind of a formal place maybe it's that but it gets to such a point where it's like no i bet there is no fun casual friendships in this society either you know, like I bet that there that this really is like we have parsed down our relationships to bare necessity and proximity and convenience or logistics. You know what I mean? Like, because there's no like, is there a joke in this movie? Uh, there's like little passing ones or even just like comedic relief, but no, there's no like say something haha it's like in in the environment that it's in us watching from you know through the screen that's funny because that would never happen but there's no punchline joke yeah which i feel like even in a comedy you or even in a in a serious movie you do get like grant i disagreed with its placement but we even talked about some of the jokes in saving private ryan you know like it and this is a movie that's very casual in like it's setting, you know, it's about people trying to fall in love and like go fucking get laid. And uh, th- there's like no everyone's so rigid. And I, you have to assume that that's societal at that point. It can't be all these people just acting this way individually. You know, it has to be societal. But how does society even advance at that point? Because. From an emotional state, how is society still pushing forward? That's the thing. There's, I don't think it is. It must be some Orwellian 1984, you know, work out of fear. Because if nobody's happy, nobody's motivated to push forward. Like what? Well, that's why I was. I, it's so funny you say that because I was about to say this feels like the counterpoint to 1984, which was that story is about here is a life that has been. Uh, created with full rigidity and and you know iron wrought in its construction and two people find each other and fall in love on the backdrop of you know the machinery of the state and this feels like the opposite of that where it seems like society is totally normal from like a work perspective or a living where you want kind of perspective but we have created this structure around relationships and two people fall in love in spite of that you know it's not rebelling against the 
work and living conditions, it's now rebelling against the emotional framework that has been established instead. Mm. Now, what I'm not sure is what necessarily to draw away from that. Exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know how anyone would have expected me to get all this in the theater, just <laughs> off the cuff. Um, it's 7 p.m. You had three slices of buffalo chicken pizza. <laughs> oh, geez. The stomach is a gurgling. Uh, You're an hour 45 in. What is it? An 85 year old woman talking directly to the right of you. Uh, what does it all mean? Because <laughs> this movie is like, man, the scene with the dog. And look, oh, man, fuck, I'm not a man. big, like, dog killed getting killed in the movie will make me cry every time like, i'm not not like i fucking hate dogs or anything like but it's just not a guaranteed lock to make me feel emotional but this one this one kills because it's it's not just a dog it's a person Ugh. it hurts and the fact that he went along with it for as long as he could, because I guess the fear of also being turned into an animal was just so much greater. Yeah, and, absolutely. Because I, I feel like without that being something that is, um, oh, what's the term? Uh, basically, like laid as foundation early on in the film, the premise of oh. You know, oh, people pick dogs. That's their first thought. That's why there's so many dogs in the world. Like that conversation would be like, oh, so they're just like crazy people and, and like just making this shit up about being turned into animals. That clearly can't be how this works. Right. But no, it's, you know, there's camels walk through the forest. There's, you know, dogs. That's my brother. All right. You can hang out with you all the time. My mom's a wolf type shit. It's bananas. But Oh, fuck, I forgot where I was going with this, but no, oh, fuck. And even honestly, even Colin Farrell's like choice of getting turned to a lobster, I think is nuts. Mm-hmm. I think is nuts. I think uh, Olivia Coleman was spot on in her uh, reaction to that. Of like, or no, not Olivia Coleman's the 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 friend with the limp. I forget his character's name, and I don't know yeah. the actor. But just like, yeah, dude, you're just going to fucking do the, nothing, get killed, and get boiled in some guy's dinner. Why would you ever pick that? It's like, yeah, that's actually a pretty fair expectation for a lobster. And why would you want to live 100 years as a lobster? Um, Honestly, it was also a fair assessment for almost any animal. Like, unless you pick an yeah. apex predator, like, he was right. You're just going to wait around until you get killed brutally by whatever's bigger than you. Or you're a dog. Um, right. In that case, that's a pretty fair uh, choice. Dog or cat, I feel like I can't miss. What would be funny is if you picked like fucking grizzly bear and then just mauled everybody on your way out the hotel. Damn, that's also that's pretty good. Just also, like kamikaze. Is the assumption also that this is a worldwide widespread phenomenon this is fact for society that if you don't find love you're turned into an animal or is that just this you know frankenstein hospitals 
uh, fucking marketing for why you would go there. It's got it's got to be. This is why we need it's, the series. It's 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 got to be top down because otherwise it would be like super duper illegal. <laughs> I would imagine this like this must be a, a uh, yeah. I don't want to say government. It might be you know feudalistic. Who fucking knows? But definitely like this is a the the government whatever form it takes decision to to operate in this in this space. How fucking funny was it though when the the one girl um, for her last day chose to just watch? Uh, she what did she want to watch? Was it Dirty Dancing. Um, no, it was fucking. What was it? Uh, she wanted to watch. Yeah, she just wanted to watch a movie alone. Um, and they were like, "Good choice," because you don't want to pick sex because you can do that when you're an animal. Yeah, but is it as much fun? Because <laughs> no, most animals don't have sex for pleasure. Yeah, and I doubt you know a lobster's got a fucking massive dick. That can't be fun. No, very, very few animals have sex for pleasure. So I can't imagine you're going to be out there having a the ball. Um, I would say on that note, uh, being a dolphin would be fun. You still get to swim around, get to hang out with a bunch of friends, enjoy, you know, sex. I think fairly, I actually would fairly pick bear. sizable brain. I like hunting and salmon. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, what would I pick? I don't I I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner. Ooh, or, or a bird flying would be pretty cool. An eagle would be an awesome choice. Just an eagle would be a good choice. Very American. Yeah. Well, in that case, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe like a condor. Um that make me French. I have no idea. Maybe uh sorry, just also here sitting here. I will wrap this one movie up because we do have another one to talk yeah. about. Um Real quick, but maybe maybe one of the takeaways here, as I sat here, you know, just thinking about it more, just one of the reasons we do this podcast. Um, maybe the idea was that the the rebel group also got it wrong. You know that that the answer to society's woes isn't necessarily the counterpoint. You know because the. The hotel was operating in this you have to be in a relationship model right within some time frame and the the rebel group on the outset was saying you in no way can be a relationship as though that's what's going to answer to the issue that was created by society or created by this this you know the hotel or whatever but neither of those were really correct you know it led to Mm -hmm. just as much mutilation really uh as being within the hotel did so maybe maybe that's something to be gleaned away from it. Stark opposition might just miss the point. Frankly, uh, I guess the biggest takeaway for me is that the best lifestyle uh, is either finding a connection with someone incredibly attractive or get exceptionally good at hunting other human beings for sport and uh, live in a resort full time. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Not wrong. All right. Well, then I guess we'll wrap this one up so we can get to our next one. Um, uh, before we do, can we pick this again next week so I can actually figure out what's going on at the end? <laughs> this will be the staple. Every every week we just check in with Corwin. <laughs> um, New animal this week? 
No? Okay. Moving yeah. on. Can you still pick a lobster? Still pick a lobster. Um, mm. All right, so this is my pick. I'll get started. I'm going to give this a, uh, f- a four out of five. Um, I, I'm really, really intrigued by it. I, I think it's so interesting. I, I'm not picking, giving it a higher star rating because of my own faults, which is as interesting as I find this is a discussion on uh, or uh, an, a, a look into love and, you know, a, an alternative view of society where we have these not just these consequences, but the these moralities and rigidities. I don't know what necessarily how I'm supposed to take that for me. I don't know how I'm supposed to make that about me. <laughs> yeah, like I'm in a happy relationship. Fuck off. No, not even that. It's like I don't know what lesson I'm supposed to learn with this for society and to make myself a better person. And so selfishly, I will not give this the four and a half I was originally thinking. I'll give you it sure. four. But it very well done. I thought that, you know, it's your land the most. The uh, writing is great. The concept is wacky. The uh, acting is great. Big fan all around. Uh, I'll also give it a four. Um, if you give us no backstory on this magical world whatsoever, uh, I can't give you more than that. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. I just enforce them. Damn straight. All right. Well, then that brings us over to 2005's Capote, uh, which was uh, written by, sorry, directed by Bennett Miller and is written by Dan Futterman based uh, in part on the book by Gerald Clark. The film stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, Clifton Collins Jr., and Katherine Keener. A lot of K sounds all up in there. The film had an estimated budget of $7 million and a worldwide gross of $49.3 million. So that is certainly a success, uh, more than seven times its cost. Uh, The film was hold on one one oscar on the back of uh one two three four five nominations it won for best performance by an actor in a leading role for philip seymour hoffman it was also nominated for best picture of the year for carol uh caroline Barron, william vince and michael o'haven o'hoven uh, best performance by an actress in a supporting role for Catherine Keener. Best achievement in directing by Bennett Miller. And best writing adaptive screenplay for Dan Futterman. Um, the film is about... Uh, in 1959, Truman Capote learns of the murder of a Kansas family and decides to write a book about the case. While researching for his novel, In Cold Blood, Capote forms a relationship with one of the killers, Perry Smith, who is on death row. Uh, Corwin, this was your movie. Go ahead and get us started. Uh, You know how good I am at getting us started. Um, The only fun anecdote I have for this, before we go into anything thought-provoking, is uh, I just stopped the movie halfway through to... uh, show Quinn what uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's voice actually sounded like because uh, she realized she had no idea. Um, boy, I, it's been a long time since I've watched this. Um, I think this is one of the final Philip Seymour Hoffman movies I've had to see uh, to fill out his catalog. And it definitely does a excellent job of cementing his status of the most talented actor 
in this generation. Um, I, I think he's truly an all-time great. I think he adds so much depth to every character he's in, whether it's you know Truman Capote or the friend from Along Came Polly. Um, it's definitely interesting seeing him use such a distinct voice because while he's never struggled to disappear into a role, uh, it's like you are seeing a true individual. Like I felt as if I was watching Truman Capote and that's just the exact representation of him as a person. And there could be no other real man that stood in his place. Um, And if there's nothing else we talk about in this movie, then Philip Seymour Hoffman, I would be, happy yeah he is uh he is phenomenal in this it, it is a, a capstone performance um another thing to note which where I, I don't think we're gonna spend too much time talking about but i want to make a note of it on the uh on the start is that this is a bennett miller movie um which is a rare thing to say which is also a weird thing to say that it's rare because bennett miller has made three movies that's it he has directed three full-length feature films, and the three movies have been Capote in 2005. One in a, uh, one Oscar was nominated for a bunch. He was nominated for an Oscar. Didn't make a movie until 2011 when he made Moneyball, and then made one more movie in 2014, Foxcatcher, and that's the last movie he made, and it's been eight years. All three of these films have been Oscar-nominated films. Between them, they've racked up a few in their own right, and he's they're the only three movies he's fucking made. I can't wrap my head around it. In 17 years, he's made three movies. All have been successful commercially and uh, critically. I can't believe he's not working every year. Isn't that nuts? Corwin? Sorry. Uh, I didn't even know who this person was before this conversation, and now I am just enthralled yeah i know i mean i i always think of bennett miller because of the back-to-back years of well three years apart but how close they were in proximity Foxcatcher and um moneyball and it's one of those things where it's like i assume he made more movies and i just didn't hear about them because who checks in that much but no that that's it this was the and- capote was the first big movie he ever did didn't make a movie for six years and has only made two more since this was released in 2005 and I don't even know how I didn't realize because Foxcatcher and Moneyball are two of my favorite movies. Absolutely. They're two great sport you know, movies. Two top five sport movies. Uh, what? It's been, it's been what, eight years? Eight years. Are you, like, I, I, I don't care if you're not working on anything. Like, I'll survive. But, like, come on. <laughs> I know. I know you think like a, like a 24 would be all over this dude's business, but whatever. He's working on a, on a Christmas Carol film. Yeah, I see that. I don't know what to make of it. Um, I boy, how do you though? Do I not think we need another one? Um, no. And I, I, Oh, well, the story is of back in 2016. I don't think this is still being made. Oh, for sure. Not then. Anyway, so 
this is an interesting movie. I probably saw this definitely feels like a movie I saw way too young. Um, because I haven't seen it in years. I'm I'm very sure I've only seen this movie one time, and I'm also very sure that it was like 2007. <laughs> like, like, you know, 12, 13 year old Josh just just his dad has no friends, and this is what we do together. <laughs> just watch movies. Um, but whatever. Um, and my recollection of the movie was that it was about because I I've never read In Cold Blood the book. And for some reason, I had it in my head that the movie was about the police fucking up an investigation instead of it being just kind of like a true crime novel, because I really like I watched this when I was a kid and then never revisited it and retconned some ideas of what it was all about in my head and never read the book, never checked back in. And when it very clearly was not that. I was surprised because I also didn't recollect it being about how Capote is a colossal asshole. Because that was for sure not my takeaway when I watched it first either. Yeah. Because he speaks with such sincerity when he is trying to make you know a connection with uh, Perry. What's his face? Uh, Perry Smith. Wow, I couldn't think of the last name Smith. Fuck me. <laughs> um, you know, he does it with such such warmth and, and what feels as though sincerity and it is very, very good manipulation. And clearly in my young mind, when I first watched this as a child, I took that sincerity to heart and, and overlooked the more dazzardly parts of what he was doing, even as they were being pointed out by Catherine Keener. Um, and to see it, you know, anew. Really, really to see it for like, more genuinely the first time that being this most recent rewatch was first, it gives so much, so much more weight to how amazing this performance is from Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, just he just knocks it out of the goddamn park, but also this such an interesting look at how terrible someone can be for for nothing. Yeah. Nothing. At the end of the day, this book is nothing. It, it invented a genre, sure, but he emotionally used a man at the end of his life for money. That's it. It's wild. Literally can be boiled down to him reading an article in a paper wanting to know what happened and then doing everything in his power as someone of note and fame to manipulate anyone around him into just learning about what happened. In, in a world of, you know, without morals or without, you know, the ethical meaning of what you're doing, yeah, that would make for a great story, a, a unbelievable novel that's, you know, you do what you have to, you know, this is something that's worth fighting to find the truth of. Um, that world doesn't exist and this is real life. And you are, I mean, I don't know, what would you, what phrase would you use to describe what he does to uh, the 
killer. Uh, I forget his name. Uh, it's emotional abuse. Emotional manipulation. Gaslighting. Sure. Yeah. And you got to think like, it's not like. It's not like he that was all he, he could possibly do, you know, because we, we've. There's other movies that do this that have been done and or other other books, other mediums that, that do something like uh, the, the, the Charlize Theron movie Monster, um, which sure. is based on uh, Aileen uh, Wernos, who uh, was a killer in, in, in Florida. Um, great movie. Uh, Char- Charlize Theron won an Oscar for it. If you ever want to see it, go check it out. Um, but it's also based on so it's based on this woman's life, you know, Eileen Wuornos. But it, it, there was also a documentary that came out where it, the documentarians were very, very blunt and was like, "Tell me about killing these people." You know, Capote doesn't have that within him, I suppose, to to be that man, or at least didn't at the beginning of this project, and instead resorted to conniving and. I won't even say being small, doing everything he possibly could to ensure that the case would stay around long enough for him to get the story he needed from these people before they were executed and then immediately giving up once it was more convenient for him to let these people die. Once it once that was it became- definitely the turning point of like, oh, shoot. I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of my actions. That was like a, oh, I see what we're actually looking for at here. Okay. Now we see him in the true light. It doesn't, it, at least for me, it didn't click before that point because he is, in my mind, effective at hiding that darker side of his intentions. Um, because up till then, it's like, you know, you'll feel some conflict, too, as a viewer, you know, like you're sitting there. Talking about crime, you know, real like hard crime, bad shit, murder and stuff like that is difficult because obviously murder is bad. Crime is bad. But capital punishment is also not our answer. And the current prison complex that we have you know also is not the answer and so it's difficult to be overly sympathetic with someone who murdered a whole family uh but it's also difficult to say that they're whatever you want to fucking do to them is totally fine because they've lost their humanity like that's not right either and mm-hmm. so seeing capote on the surface struggle with that a little bit at the beginning. I think we can all sympathize with that as well. I'm sure we all have disparate views on um, capital and punishment based on the way people vote, but I'm sure that we can all agree that we also recognize that people do have conflicting feelings on capital punishment. So to understand the inner turmoil is pretty easy to grasp, but yeah, like you said, once it gets to the point where, you know, he is like, I'm not fucking helping these people with the goddamn appeals. I have my book. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, no, this is um, this is beyond the pale. Uh, I don't even know where to go from there. Um, part of it is trying to remember the. What was the final scene? 
How does this close? Uh, I believe I believe it closes at the premiere of um, To Kill a Mockingbird, the movie. And then with the... Um, oh, no, it closes with The Hanging, right? Oh, which one does Don't it close remember. with? Hold I on. I will say, while you're thinking, the amount that they underplayed um, Harper Lee and, and To Kill a Mockingbird being the other side of this was interesting but also like come on man like this is actually a crazy friendship how did this happen they were neighbors okay yeah. now i know I believe it says it in the movie uh, but yeah they were uh, they were neighbors okay well then that one's on me yeah i actually love that they underplayed harper league in this movie because it it goes in line with how you know, Truman viewed himself, which was as the center of attention. So disrespecting Harper Lee by not giving her adequate screen time when she wrote really a book of probably greater significance from oh, a literary gotcha. perspective. Um, uh, it's it's tough because In Cold Blood essentially did create the true crime genre, whereas To Kill a Mockingbird did not create a genre necessarily. But at the same time, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of the seminal pieces of American literature, whereas in cold blood is is just not um i really hate to use american public schools as the parameter for global literature but the fact that everyone you and i know has read this book is significant yeah i i mean it's and the movie and the movie is also fantastic the movie is also a huge part of that too because it was a, it was a book that was incredibly well written that had a, a lot of very important themes from its era that translate into today that they also made a very good film adaptation of, which is one of the reasons everyone watches it when they're in or reads it and watches it when they're in like high school. It's one of those few books that got made into also a good movie. Um, by the way, the final scene is um, Capote talks. Yeah, it is after it is at the. Um, uh after the execution, he's talking to Lee on the phone. And then he looks through photos from the case and writings and drawings given to him by Perry Smith. And then it goes to the um, text over black screen. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, despite how clear cut it is, that Capote is a bad guy here. They do. They do include a lot of the conflict and conflicted feelings. I'm sure that Capote himself felt while going through this process. For instance, he does go to the execution and when he cries in there and Hey, emotional manipulation is one hell of a thing. Maybe I got caught again, but it did feel sincere when he cried in, in that moment. And, and uh, cause honestly, he didn't have to fucking go. Mm-hmm. And, the fact that he did, I think, really is more self-satisfaction. I think it's more for him to say he did something in, in those final moments than it is to for, for them. Um, but even within that, I think there is, uh, again, that, that feeling of, you know, regret, so to speak. Well, of course. It's always self-serving in the end. Why else would he do anything? I mean, for, for all his relationships, he kept telling his husband or partner or whatever that he would, you know, stop working or do this, that, and the other thing. Never fucking held up to it. 
I don't think we see the character again after that luncheon. After the luncheon? Uh, with Harper Lee in the guy's house. Oh, the one in Spain? Yes. Yeah. I believe you're right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie itself is very well constructed. Um, you know, for a movie about the writing of a book about a murder... They do keep it interesting without really showing or telling much about the murder. It really is one of the better executions of, um, in a lot of ways, like inner inner dialogue being expressed in some kind of way. This was, if I have not read any of the books that this is based on or about, but I am, I could picture a book like this being done almost without dialogue for huge sections of it um, because really so much of the dialogue that we do end up getting kind of just narrates and explains the feelings of where Capote himself is at or where some of the other characters and surrounding him are emotionally at and but doing so while making it feel natural and also informing what you're seeing uh, is fucking difficult and this film nails it. It, it is really a very quiet movie with very little score um, that manages to pull off everything it's going for. Um, I, I can't agree more and also can't really add anything more. It was very uh, well put. Do you have anything else you want to add? Um, I don't, I don't think so. No, I mean, there's not too much else to really say. Again, it is a movie about the writing of a book about a man and his book. But, you know, still, it lends itself to only so much to get into, I suppose. Um, all right, to that, I feel effect, like I, I should read the book now. Final ratings and reviews. Uh, Corwin Heller. Um, I want to give this one a four. I think it uh, it hits all the right spots. Thoughts and is again, I'll reiterate, an unbelievable performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and uh, I don't know, I just I couldn't I couldn't see myself giving it a truly uh, super high score. Something about it. Fair enough. I'm going to go four as well. I think. Um, no reason. Gut feeling. Yeah, too sure. Right, before moving in to next week's picks, I would like to introduce another segment to you. Oh, boy. I wonder what this could be. Weekly Roundup. What have you watched? Ooh. Um, Stuff that we're not going to talk about on the podcast. Um, movies that you've, that you've seen. Movies we've both seen. Short little thing. Great. Now I have to remember what I watched this week. If, the, if there's um, anything. I've been watching The Boys. I've been watching through The Boys from the start. Um, that's been excellent. I, uh, I thought of this because I just last night watched, um, Top Gun Maverick. Ooh, very good. I didn't think I was going to pick it for a movie because I know you watched it a little bit ago and it's still in theaters and I just watched it and I wasn't going to go back to the theater to watch it. I was wondering if we could exchange thoughts on it real quick here at the end. I thought that as a Top Gun sequel and a purely action flick, 
I mean, the first half of the film I thought was really enjoyable, a really great, you know, uh, in the spirit of Top Gun type sequel. Um, I enjoyed the callbacks. I enjoyed the nostalgia of it. And then the second half was a batshit crazy action movie that was, it was Mission Impossible to look at. It was yeah, Impossible. made absolutely no sense whatsoever. But my goodness, was it good to look at? Yeah, I was I was equating this last night with Cal that this is um, it's a genre of movie that doesn't really exist anymore, which was mm-hmm. the genre I would just call it macho. That's all. It's not really like an action movie, because when you think of action movie, it's a lot of like fight scenes and explosions and bullets and guns. And there's a little bit of that at the end, but it's really just jocular. You know, it's (laughs) it is the male equivalent of the rom com, which is I am here chasing for a certain brand of serotonin. (laughs) I, I'm looking for the right stuff to get released from the inner workings of my brain. I know exactly how this movie is going to go <laughs> um, to a T. And that is fine because I'm here for that sweet, sweet feeling. Um, everyone here watching it knows exactly what page everyone else is on. And that's okay. That's yeah. it's why we're here. And to that effect, thought it was perfectly fine. I don't think it's a great movie. Um, then again, OG Top Gun's not a great movie, um, but it, I thought it was perfectly enjoyable. Um, seeing Val Kilmer made me real sad. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. I also just rewatched um, um, or just watched for the first time the Val Kilmer documentary that came out last year um, today, which made me more sad. But uh, I, I was scrolling through looking for movies uh, just before this and saw that and was like, I need to watch this and add it to my list. It's good. It's sad. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it did what it had to do. Um, it's funny because I also listen to, if anyone listens to the, it's always sunny podcast. It's a great podcast. Um, they don't need me promoting it. They're more famous than we are, um, <laughs> but, um, they talked very briefly about it where they said what's funny. And I don't think I necessarily would have picked up on it. It's tough to know having already had something pointed out to you, whether you'd notice it without that or not. Um, mm-hmm. But they never refer to who the enemy is. They only say nope. the enemy. And they were pointing out that they did that in their making of um, lethal weapon six in the show, how they didn't want to offend <laughs> any specific nation. So they mm-hmm. never mentioned a nation. And they were all sitting there in the theater like, we did this. We did this years ago. Um, And that was funny. But what it really did for me was make me think, yeah, there's no nation we're actively bombing (laughs) and not starting World War Three. They don't even like name like they they say F-18, the Tomcat, uh, like they they go into details of all the planes that they're flying and the enemies is just fifth gen fighter. Yep. Yep. Like I don't fighter. It's like, uh, we're going up against a a 2018 SUV. Which one? 2018s. It's like, okay. 
It's next cool. gen. Yeah, but it is. Uh, it did also make me think, though, like. Again, there is pretty much no nation we're do like. So I kept thinking to myself during the movie, man, when Iran started their nuclear pro- program, we didn't even bomb that one. Yeah. <laughs> like there's this movie is not happening for that reason. If the events oh. of this movie unfolded world war three, because that's a legal an illegal act of war. Yes. I enjoyed a very, very fun piece about the uh, marketing and legality of this film. And it was, uh, it was excellent. But uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, I watched it a little bit begrudgingly, but uh, I, 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 yeah, liked it. Want to hear your thoughts. Um, So, Hey, if you keep, if you watch any more movies that aren't for the podcast in the next couple of weeks, just, Think about it real quick. Don't have to be a long thing. We're not going to do a whole dissection of them. Um, in the meantime, though, for our next film, what do you got? Uh, I've got a film that I've actually wanted to talk about for a little while, and we've done this director before, uh, so it'll be nice to be able to talk about both, but I'm going with Michael Mann's Thief. Oh, Interesting. I don't think I've ever seen Thief. I haven't either. Uh, right on. That's exciting. All right. So it's for one. I think this might be the first time in the history of the show. I haven't seen either of the movies we're doing because I'm also picking a movie I haven't seen intentionally because um, I got tired of picking movies on a rewatch. And so I am going with 1957's Throne of Blood, which is an Akira oh, Kurosawa boy. movie. Okay, I like that. Yeah, so I like uh, Mr. Kurosawa, and, and when he's doing his samurai thing, uh, usually good shit happens. So, Thief appears to be available on Amazon Prime. Throne of Blood is on HBO Max. Check check him out before next week, or don't. Um, Corbin, anything else before we get out of here for the day? Um, no. All right. Well, then, if you would like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. And if you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. Uh, and until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye. <laughs>